0: Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior following was recorded on Sunday, August 28, 2022. Today's message, title: Praying the Promises of God, a study in the book of Nehemiah.
1: How's everybody doing today? You ready to to dive into the Word together? Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Uh so this is our uh, this is our, our, our what third week in Nehemiah. We're doing the second half of Nehemiah's prayer. Uh, last week we looked at his starting prayer, and I loved how he started his, his prayer with, which is very common in the scriptures. Uh, a lot of the times when you see God teach us how to pray in the scriptures, you'll see that it starts with worship. Oddly enough, as we often start with. Uh, well, God, I need this, I want this. Nehemiah starts by acknowledging the greatness and the goodness of God. And then he moves on from there into uh, repentance. That's one of the things that we explored last week because we live in a day and age where uh, it has been common practice to divorce what we call worship away from repentance. But worship is describing worth to someone. Like the songs that we're singing we were basically saying, God, there is no one like you. No one is greater than you. And yet, how often do we have churches filled with songs like the ones we were just singing that walk out and practically we don't live that way, right? We may sing on a Sunday for an hour or so about the greatness of God, but when we walk into society, the way we behave, the way we spend our time and resources, we actually believe that there are many things out there that may be as great or greater than God. And we would rather live for those things. And so we loved how Nehemiah started his prayer out with worship and then worship leading to repentance. uh, Because when we elevate the words of God, when we see how beautiful God is above all things, then we'll see that he is worth letting go of all else as long as we gain him. And so, therefore, worship and repentance are intimately intertwined with one another. And worship without repentance is similar to someone perhaps saying, I love you all the time, and yet with their actions and behavior uh, really communicating to you that he or she hates you or disdains you. Right At that point, when, you're, when you have a friendship or relationship like that, when verbally someone says all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you, I adore you, you're the best. And then in their behavior, they betray you, they hate you, they disdain you. You know that there's something missing, right? But unfortunately, a lot of the times as the modern church, we've been there. We gather on Sundays and we say, God, you're awesome, you're the best. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you for being you. And there's nothing and no one greater than you. And we walk out of the Sunday service and practically we live nothing like that. And so, unfortunately, that kind of worship is very common today. But in our second half of Nehemiah's prayer, we dive into Nehemiah praying through God's promises and praying for restoration. And there's actually... One thing, because uh, I don't know, know about you, but <laughs> if you meet with me and things are not going well in your life, typically one of the first questions I'll ask you is, how's your time with God in prayer? <laughs> how's your study of and, and dwelling on the word of God and his scriptures? And, and how, how is that going before we move into anything else? And so in Nehemiah 1, uh, verses eight through 10, we actually see a few things. We see Nehemiah is reading scripture. Perhaps in these verses, he is actually memorizing scripture. And then lastly, he's praying scripture. And so I've, I read a book some time ago called Praying the Bible or something like that by Donald Miller. And it's changed this way, the way I read my Bible. And actually when we're dwelling on Nehemiah's prayer here, that's what he's doing right here. He's praying the promises of God. And so would you stand with me as we read these verses (laughs) in Nehemiah? It says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Amen. Let's be seated. So with Nehemiah, what we start with is he's praying the promises of God for his people. Um, now, I don't know if you have babysat kids or if you have kids, as I was thinking about this, this fuels to me what my kids often do to me. They go, Dad, will you do X? I'll say, okay, in frustration after being asked a thousand times, okay, I will do X. And then uh, if I ever back out of my promise, they remind me of, but Dad, you promised, right? So if you don't know, uh, my oldest son, Mikhail, and some of you have experienced this, the, the, <laughs> the toll this takes on your soul as you come to our house. Uh, so he's, he's, got, he's, he's autistic. And he gets into things and fixates on things for years. I mean, things that you would never even think about fixating on. One of the things was the 20th Century Fox intro to movies. You know what I'm talking about? And actually, if he he was in here right now, he would scream out like, stop! (laughs) Because I'm not allowed to sing it for some reason. But he would go on YouTube and find these 20th Century Fox intros and watch that 20-second clip repeatedly. And if you'd let him for hours, just that one clip, then he would find other YouTube videos that were the same clip, but distorted in some ways. So There's like, and he would turn it up. And, and if you if he would ask for screen time and you would give it to him and you're like, okay, you get 40 minutes or so. After 15 minutes of that intro happening over and over again, you're just like, no, 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 I can't do this. I can't, I got to take the, the iPad away. And as I was thinking about this, I was actually thinking about those moments that I've had with Mikhail because he won't say much, but he will start to like, his eyes will just look at you and start crying because he really loves that intro. And I'm like, I was thinking how many times I've been so bothered by this, this plea of, but God, nay, but, but dad, you promised. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but dad, you promised. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Nehemiah here And basically what Nehemiah is doing is that in some ways he's coming to his heavenly father and saying, father, this is what you promised. You promised to do the impossible. When your people would be scattered among the nations, you promised you would bring us back if we returned to you. And here I am returning to you, father, you promised. (laughs) And the thing that is so awesome about this is that Our heavenly father is not me, the imperfect dad who gets frustrated over these reminders of what he has promised, but he loves it. He tells us to repeat it to him, right? Even if you think about, if you think about the Lord's prayer, what is the father word in English? (laughs) The Lord's prayer, Lord's prayer, Our father in heaven? Yeah, okay. (laughs) As you think about that, he's, he's asking us to repeat promises that God has made to him. And he's not annoyed. He's not frustrated like me, but he's encouraging us to do it throughout the scriptures. And here, what Nehemiah is doing is he's dwelling on two chapters in the Bible, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 30. And he's basically quoting them back to God in the form of prayer. The promises there are for the Jewish people of Israel. In those places, God promises them to bless them if they keep his ways, but if they go away from him and go against him, he will punish them. And if they keep his ways, he will provide for them food. He will give them victory over attacking enemies. He will protect them and give them peace and give them a a land that's gonna grow fruit and vegetables and so on and so so forth. But in Leviticus, 26, 11 through 12, we see the biggest promise of all. And that is, I will make my, and this is God speaking to Israel. He says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will make among you, uh, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So that's the promise that God says to them. If you follow my ways, this is my promise to you all the physical blessings, the peace, the prosperity, the biggest promise of all, I will be your God. You will be my people. My presence will be with you and I will walk among you. But in his promises of punishments,
2: he promises them the opposite. That if they
1: oppose God, he will oppose them. His protection will be removed. His providence will be removed. His peace will be lifted from them. They will be conquered. And even if they're not being attacked by any enemy forces, they will still not find peace. They will not be able to relax. And then in Leviticus 26, 33, he says this, and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be desolation and your cities shall be waste. So the promise of God
2: for Nehemiah is not just theoretical. This is
1: like he looks around and this is practical for him. He is living this verse. He is 1300 kilometers away from Jerusalem. He is among the people who have been scattered among the nations. And he's saying, God, you promised. If we return to you, That you will gather us out of all the various places around the world and you will gather us back in Jerusalem. And it looks impossible, but you have promised. It's the reality of the situation for the Jewish people living in Israel. But as you just got the news in the beginning of the chapter, Israel, especially Jerusalem, is in desolation. Yes, the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls are broken down, the gates are not there, they're vulnerable for attacks. But God in his mercy and grace offers a promise that if his people confess their sins
2: and come to him, he will be there waiting
1: with an outreach, outstretched arm. And there are two things that I'd like to mention here. <laughs> um, how, First of all, how incredibly sinful we can be. <laughs> um, if you haven't noticed this, if you check out a list of the best places in the world to live and you look at the flags, do you know where the best places in the world to live, what, what they have in common with regards to their flags? The top ones almost every single time have a cross on them. It's very interesting to see, right? Uh, and, and the reason is because back in the day, a long, long time ago, God's people In these various places, mostly Scandinavia and other places where they were building churches, preaching the gospel, seeking to reflect the gospel by starting hospitals, by being the social services for the people if they lacked anything physical, uh, by being the educational system where people would go and get educated. And on that ground basically built a society that was extremely blessed because the church was preaching the gospel and reflecting the gospel in the way they behaved, right? And yet, when you look at those places and you look at the state of Christianity in all those places, you'll see that most of these places with the cross and the flag, with a hymn like ours or a national anthem simply called a hymn of praise, Fully like elevating the worth of God, yet no one believes it in the country. So, one of the things that's blown my mind over the years is how sinful we are, (laughs) how sinful we are with, with regards to when we pray, God, would you bless us? As the Israelites did, would you bless us? We will keep your commandments. Would you bless us? And then he does bless us. And what we do is basically what the Galatians did. When Paul asked the Galatians, are you going to finish in the flesh what God started in the spirit? And what we've done is the exact same thing as Israel did, as the Galatians did, as we've said, God, thank you for your blessings. Now get out of the picture. We don't need you anymore.
2: We got this from here.
1: And this is exactly what's happened in Israel. God is blessed. And yet they've tried to push him out of the picture. And in pushing him away, he decides I'm going to let you get the consequences breaking the covenant and turning away from me. And you see this, right? When things go bad. When things go bad, what is the question very often for Christians? Why would God allow something bad like this to happen? Right? Why would a good God? I have struggled with this. This is a genuine question that I think most of us have asked, right? But anytime things go bad, we ask why would a good God allow this to happen? And yet, when things go right, when things go well, well, uh, there's just our hard work paying off, right? (laughs) That's, that's, that's then to us. But, uh, let's not ask any more questions there. And the second thing I want to highlight is this many people, when they read this, when they read Leviticus 26 and Numbers 30, and they read the promises of God to his people, if they will stick by him and the promises of God to his people, If they will turn away from him, a lot of us will say, oh, that's harsh. Because why would you bless them as long as they stick with you, but then you would curse them if they leave you? Isn't that harsh? Why don't you just take care of them and love them unconditionally? But the thing is, I think what I have to wrestle with and what Nehemiah is also wrestling with is the love of God is seen from an eternal perspective. So what is the biggest blessing that God can give to his people, right? He he promises peace. He promises victory. He promises physical blessings and food and so on, but that's not the ultimate blessing that he can give to his people. After all, you you may have people who have lived incredibly long and luxurious lives filled with wealth and health and prosperity and popularity. Uh, But then after their 100 years here on earth, What happens? They draw their final breath. They close their eye for the last eye, uh, uh, two eyes for the last time, and they are faced with eternity, right? And then they might realize that, man, I've been so focused on the temporary blessings of God that I rejected the eternal blessing of being with God forever and enjoying him for all eternity. And a million years from now, they may look back and say, wow, I had a great hundred years, but it will be nothing compared to the loss of eternal joy and salvation in Jesus. And so often we forget this. When when God loves us, he loves us in a way that has eternity in mind. (laughs) Just as I was reading Romans 8 this morning, I was focusing on that lovely coffee mug verse, right? All things work together for those who are, called and loved by God. Man, that's an awesome promise. And for years, I would think, man, that, that means, man, if I get a girlfriend and she dumps me, I get a better girlfriend, you know? Or if I, if I crash my car, I get a better car. Man, this is gonna be awesome. There's gonna be upward mobility all the way to eternity, right? <laughs> but you keep reading, <laughs> keep reading verse 29, 30, 31. And he actually says, no, he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is how he's gonna make all situations work out for your good. (laughs) He's gonna change your character to look more like Christ. (laughs) It's not necessarily a nicer car or a better girlfriend, right? It's, no, you're gonna look more like Christ, more and more. And what is that? That's God loving us with an eternal perspective. If he would simply get me a better car, (laughs) that's him focusing on this life only man, that's great getting a better car, but that's nothing compared to eternity with God. And so when we see God in the Old Testament and we see Nehemiah remind him of his promises that you promised, if we turn to you, you will bring us back to you. That's God loving his people with eternity in mind. And when you think, man, that's harsh, it's harsh that God allowed them to be pulled away from Jerusalem. Just remember, no, this is actually part of his grace to pull his people, to
2: remind them you need me. And not just for this life, for all eternity. You need me more than anything.
1: That's, that's difficult to remember sometimes, right? And one of the, the things that actually scare me the most with, with regards to the judgment of God is not this, what we see in Leviticus 26 and Numbers 30. It's not God saying, man, if you leave me, I will make sure you feel it. It's actually Romans chapter one in the New Testament. Romans one gives us this idea of sometimes the punishment of God being completely passive. Not meaning that, man, if you turn from me, I will make you feel it. No, if you turn to me from me, I will let you. That is scary. To live your whole life, Chasing a carrot where you think that's where joy is found. That's where hope is found. And God just letting you. Not making you feel that you have left the source of truth and joy and life. And he says in Romans 1:22 to 24, claiming to be wise. <laughs> Any of us been there claiming to be wise? Uh, they became fools. Some of us have been there. Uh, <laughs> Elliot, a little too enthusiastic. Yes, I've been there. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things there. What he's saying is, man, what, this, this is what we do. We start worshiping created things instead of the creator. And so when we think about the judgment of God to Israel and he says, no, if you leave me, I'm going to take all these created things away from you and you're going to feel it. That's actually his grace reminding them, this is not where joy is found. You need me. And so he's saying, man, you swapped out the glory of the one true God for created things, animals and birds and creeping things.
2: Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That is a scary judgment of God. Not when he says, I'll make you feel it when you leave me, but rather when he gives us up for it, saying, you think joy is going to be there? Go for it. you may be able to drown out the screams of your soul for something more for a while. Go for it. That is difficult. And you may scoff
1: and you may be like, well, (laughs) I don't have any idols to creeping things or animals. Like, just look at your cronars, man. They got fish on them. Crabs, creeping things, right? Some of us live for those cronars. Some of us find our identity in those kronars. How many of those Cronars do I have? <laughs> you may think you've moved on from these primitive people, but no, we do the same thing. We worship the creation rather than the creator. And one of the blessings of God in the Old Testament to his people is to say, No, when you leave me, I'll let you know. You
2: will feel it with the hopes that you will come back to me. And when you do.
1: I will gather you from all the various places around the world. And so here God is saying, I love you enough so that if you walk away from me, I will make you feel that you've strayed in order that you might have a true blessed life that is eternity with me. And so Nehemiah says, I will return to you. We will ter- return to you, dear Father. We will remember your promises to restore our ruins when we when we do that. And so Nehemiah teaches us a lesson that in our prayer, we should seek to pray the Bible back to God. This is actually the same concept that Jesus taught his disciples. So in John 14, Jesus puts it this way, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And grappled with that verse, <laughs> it's like, God, just fast forward my education or whatever. <laughs> in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you know.
2: What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name?
1: Have you thought about it? Is it to bring our sort of Christmas wish list to God? And then like, God, I want a PlayStation and I want a car and I want, a, I want free groceries for a year. And, you know. <laughs> and then in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. You know, all right. John fourteen. Awesome. What, it, what does it look like for us to pray in the name of Jesus? And and to understand this, often we have to think to ourselves, what would a person two thousand years ago think when they heard this verse? Not what an Icelander would think in twenty twenty two, right? But rather, what would someone, one of his disciples, two thousand years ago, think when they heard this verse of praying in Jesus' name? Well. Remember, they're living in a society where they had prophets who had come and gone throughout the last few hundred years and whatever they would come, they would say, thus says the Lord and they would speak on behalf of God in God's name, right? And they were also living in a society where they were surrounded by a bunch of people by roaming, roaming Roman soldiers, right? Roaming Roman soldiers. And they would see that the soldiers could arrest people, inflict punishment, uh, give out things on behalf or in the name of Caesar. And so you would have these people that that this is their daily life. This is the image that they have in their mind when they think of doing something in someone else's name. There was this thing called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace and they're there, the soldiers were there to protect the Roman peace in Caesar's name or in the name of Rome. And so when they would hear Jesus say, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. What would they think of? They would probably think it was something like this. It was prayers prayed according to the will of Jesus in line with the character of Jesus. And then lastly, with the power of Jesus. They're praying his will, his character in his name with his power. So when Jesus tells them to pray prayers in his name, he asked them to pray prayers that he would pray in his authority. And I've often used this analogy of me going around the streets of Reykjavik, slapping people on the face, right? If I were to go down the streets of Reykjavik and just pick up every other person and just slap them across the face with no warning or whatsoever, And if they get mad, which probably most of them would, and they would ask me, what are you doing, man? I would be like, oh, I'm doing this in the name of the prime minister. If if you have an issue with this, take it to her. Uh, You
2: know, That's her problem. I'm doing this in her name. Well,
1: they would be pissed, right? They would get mad. The prime minister would get mad because I may be doing things in her name, but she did not ask me to do any of these things in her name. But we often do the same thing when we say in Jesus' name. <laughs> like I, I think of the verse in James 4, I think it is, when he says, you, you have not because you, you ask not and you don't get because you ask for the wrong things. <laughs> so, so it's God's way of protecting you from yourself. But how often do we do this? We do stuff, we have prayers in Jesus' name without ever thinking, is this something Jesus would want for me? Does he possibly have something better in mind for me? Is he possibly thinking about loving me from an eternal perspective and I'm just thinking about the temporary things right here and right now? Is he possibly using these circumstances to mold me into the image of Christ?
2: (laughs) And unfortunately,
1: this is not just something we do now. This is something that's been evident throughout 2000 years of church history. The church has done an incredible job doing things in Jesus' name that he never asked us to do, including to slaughter, to to kill, to go in wars, to see Christianity as a political force rather than a heart transformation when Jesus didn't ask us to.
2: It's not just the past, it's the present too. Like
1: even as we think about, okay, what is the church supposed to do? A lot of us think about this, Sunday services. Gatherings, events, that's what the church is. So we design services that people like instead of asking ourselves, well, does God actually like this? Is this actually he called something that he's called us to do? We've made our faith to be about church event and are more worried about creating services rather than making disciples
2: as Jesus asked us to do. There's a lot of things that
1: we do today in the name of Jesus (laughs) by attaching his name to the end of it that he did not will for us to do at all. So I encourage us in our actions and in our prayers to take a page out of Nehemiah's playbook here. Let's pray the scriptures. Let's pray the scriptures. They are filled with promises to us. And be careful about this, by the way. Some of the promises are not for us. (laughs) Some of the promises are for people in specific places, in specific times that, you know, I have a plan for your future, for prosperity and so on. That's for the exiles about to go into Babylon, that he's going to bring them back and so on. Like, think about all the promises that we have for us. Think about what the will of God is for Iceland. When he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest so that we would see more people come to faith. That's a prayer according to the will of Jesus in his authority. We are literally quoting his words back to him saying, Father, you asked us to pray these things. And so here I am praying, would you give us more people in Iceland who share the gospel, who disciple people who are willing to be a part of your unfolding story here. And as you read your Bibles and you see glimpses into the will and character of God, pray in light of it. Right, I've had days where sometimes I just look at my Bible like it's a math homework, right? And I read the text, and sometimes like I'm I'm finishing a chapter, and I'm like, I didn't, I didn't catch a single word of that chapter, but I read it. But I would encourage you to do this: think of different ways to read your Bibles, right? Yeah, you can read it to get to know it better. Sometimes read it fast to get a whole overview of a book of the Bible or the Bible itself. Sometimes read it slow to study and think about every word that you. Do you reading? And sometimes do it like this, read. And as you see a glimpse into the promise or character of God, stop and pray. God, would you do this? Would you do this in my life? Would you do this in the people around me? Would you do this in my nation, in this world? And just pray the promises of God back to him like Nehemiah did. Pray the promises of scripture. Pray Romans eight twenty eight to be revealed. If you find yourself in a difficult circumstance and you think of Psalm 23, that he's with you in the valley of the shadow of death, pray, God, can you reveal to me how you are here, where you are? Because I feel alone. <laughs> As you go through difficulty, think about Romans eight twenty eight and think about, okay, God, you promised to, to do these things for my good. Would you reveal yourself to me? What, what are you doing? How am I being changed in all this? Worship God in your prayers. Repent in your prayers. Remind God of his promises in your prayers. And then lastly, as Nehemiah does, pray for restoration. Nehemiah 1:11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man now I was cupbearer to the king. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love that last sentence. Is like, oh, by the way, I was cupbearer to the king. <laughs> okay, that's great. That's had nothing to do with the prayer. But that's great. But we see a glimpse into who Nehemiah is. He's in a position of authority. Uh, we talked about this a little bit three weeks ago. He he was very highly regarded in the Persian Empire, trusted by the king himself, and yet he's there, surrounded by the political force of the Persian Empire. And yet, he's not appealing to any of those kings, any of those politicians. He's appealing to the King of Kings. Because Nehemiah knows that success is not based on worldly power, but on God alone. And Nehemiah realizes that. But notice here that Nehemiah has reminded God of his promises to restore Israel if his people turn to him, that he will gather his people from all over the world and do the unthinkable and impossible. And now he asks God, Will you let me be a part of this process? Will you
2: grant me favor with this guy over here who's got a lot of worldly power? But I'm appealing to you who has heavenly power. And so how can we apply these verses to our lives? Well,
1: first, be challenged to lay hold on the promises of scripture as Nehemiah does here. He held tightly to the promises of scripture concerning him and the people of Israel. And secondly, to, to pray through the scriptures as we read, to think and talk to God and to ask him to move. And thirdly, to ask God to restore the ruins that we see.
2: I mean, if you look hard enough at your own
1: life, you'll see ruins somewhere. If you look hard enough, or actually maybe not so hard at all. If you look at our church, (laughs) you'll see ruins somewhere. There are things that we need to do to help us grow together as a body, to take care of one another, to make disciples, to glorify God together. We are by no means the perfect church and neither will we ever be until we see God in heaven. And so you may be seeing the ruins And then perhaps if you zoom out from our church and you just see the state of of souls today, the state of Christianity in general in the West or in the world, you may ask yourself, how will you move? Will you send laborers to the harvest? Will you give us elders and pastors who preach the word without shame as people are looking for people who itch their ears and say what they want to hear? Will you give us faithful preachers? Will you give us faithful churches? Will you help me be a part of the solution in some way here in Iceland or around the world? Will you help me figure out who I'm called to dissect? And maybe those ruins are ruined relationships, maybe bankrupt spiritual state that you find yourself in. Maybe it's your mindset or your focus, your priorities, whatever it is, ask God for restoration and ask how God's plan to use you in that. Perhaps it's in the church. We need relationships to grow strong, discipleship to take place, help in various ministries to not just try to survive as a church, but thrive.
2: But I'm reminded of this sister.
1: Uh, that She came to our church, I think four or five years ago before the war started in Ukraine. Uh, and I was voice messaging her uh, on Instagram as, as the, the war was starting in Ukraine and it was starting to hit her city. Uh, for six months now we're kind of going back and forth a little bit and she's in a city in Ukraine faced with physical ruins all around her even though she had multiple offers to leave she refused and she wanted to be light in the midst of the ruins she she saw like literal ruins around her and said I I think I'm going to be here and be light and in one of the voice messages I remember so vividly she said something along the lines of if I die I know where I'll be there are a bunch of people around me
2: who don't know, who don't have that hope. And actually I
1: was, I was talking with uh, Alexei here during the, while we were uh, praying and he was showing me pictures and videos from his church in Ukraine. And it's incredible to see. He was, he was showing me this video of a chock full, like building maybe 150, 200 people completely full inside. And then another video from the outside where they had a screen and probably a hundred more or something like that. Like the church building was overflowing with people. And he was saying, because of the war, people are coming to faith. And I think of my sister who sent me like, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be salt and light. And that's maybe a dramatic example because there she's literally looking around and there's ruined buildings around her, but there are ruins in the midst of our lives too. There are ruins in our own lives and around us. And the problem in Iceland is we're really good at hiding it, right? We decorate our ruins, <laughs> we give them a, a facelift, <laughs> so they don't look so bad all the time. We are so good at pretending like everything is fine when, in fact, everything is falling apart. And she prays for justice. She prays for peace and restoration. But also, she knows she wants to be a part of it. And so, as we start to take the veil of the very pretty and decorated ruins in our own society, may we do the same thing. God, would you give justice and peace? Would you give hope? And would you somehow let me be a part of this? Would you give me eyes to see and ears to hear what you're doing around me to lay hold of the good things that you've prepared for me to do and to actually ask myself, God, who who am I called to reach? Who am I called to love? Who am I called to talk to? Who, am I, who, who is a young Christian in my life that I can wrap my hats around and walk with them through what Christian life looks like? Let's pray for workers in the harvest, for more people to come to faith, to grow in faith, for God to provide our daily bread in uncertain times. Let us remind ourselves that we have a father in heaven and so on. But we must start with the biggest ruin of all. If you're in here,
2: if anyone is in here and your relationship with God is in ruins, that is the biggest ruin of all. That's where you start.
1: It's out of that relationship that all other godly actions follow. My hope is not that you would go out of here today to be a morally better person next week. Because if you do that and then you face God, you will realize that you were not moral at all. No one is moral enough for heaven. Romans 3.23 says, we've all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. And if if the only thing I get you to do is to walk out of here today to try to be a more moral person, I've failed. Now that can be the fruit of the faith, but the root of the faith is Jesus. He is the one who fixes your relationship with God. And if you don't start there, You have nothing. You may be bearing fruit, but it's rotten. (laughs) It will not
2: impress God. Our righteousness is
1: like filthy rags. That's what one of the verses in the Old Testament says. Here I come, look at how righteous I am. And it's like a dirty rag compared to the holiness of God. It's from our relationship being restored with God that every other godly action follows. So I, take, uh, I want to take, I want us to take and apply these lessons from Nehemiah today, and to pray a scripture together. And if you're in here and you've not yet become a follower of Jesus, if you pray this prayer with us and you mean these words, and you actually believe them, is they're not just empty words to you? This would make you a Christian or I'll give you the first step to becoming a Christian. So i want to read these incredible, incredible promises of God in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. And I want us just to pray in light of this, take a page out of Nehemiah's playbook and pray the promises of God back to him. It says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is
2: light. So Jesus, we come
1: to you. We are weary from our labors in need of your rest and your peace that surpasses every understanding. We've tried to face life by ourselves. We we're tired of being let down by other things that promise us joy and peace and rest. And yet they leave us with nothing but disappointment. We are tired from trying to earn our way to heaven. And we ask for your rest and we give thank, we thank you for that just as you did with Nehemiah. When we turn to you, we are not met with judgment, but with grace for you are gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus, would you help us let go of our striving and man-made burdens that are heavy and take upon us your yoke, which is easy and a burden that doesn't seem like a burden at all, but a joy because we confess that we want to be where you are, where the rest of our souls can be found and we want to give ourselves to your rule in our lives and we find rest because we've accepted that we can never earn heaven. But we accept your gracious gift of salvation, that you give peace to our souls by nailing our debt to the cross and bearing our shame and our sin and we rejoice that you are enough to save us. And now we gladly submit to you for you are gentle and lowly
2: and you will lead us with grace to everlasting peace and joy.
1: We accept the gift of salvation found in Jesus alone and we ask you to lead us as we follow you this day, this week and for the rest of our lives. Give us your
2: peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you're in here and you never prayed a prayer like this before, or you never believed a prayer like this before, I would love to talk to you
1: about Jesus and what a life looks like following Jesus. Because the biggest gift that I can give you or anyone else in this life is the gift of joy and peace and hope found in Jesus alone. And so if you're willing to make the step of trusting in Jesus as your savior and surrendering your life to him, I would love to talk with you after the service. And for all of those who prayed that prayer and you could really mean it, if you've found your peace, your hope, your joy in Jesus alone, then I want you to celebrate communion with us. If you've surrendered your life to him, so if you're in here and you're not a Christian, you're not surrendered your life to, to Jesus, we are glad that you're here, but we ask that you do not participate in this. This is for us as we celebrate the gift of salvation in Jesus alone. Uh, but if you are in here and you've taken these two steps, Jesus is your savior and Jesus is your Lord. Let's celebrate what Christ has done. Let's remember what Christ has promised us. Let's again, rem- hold fast to the scriptures where Jesus tells us to remind ourselves of his death because this is the fuel that we need as we go into this week. Not just to do more stuff, but be driven by this grace, the broken body of Jesus and his blood shed for us. And in light of that, worship him with our lives, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our words. And so I want to pray as we go into this song. And if you are a Christian in here, come and get the elements here in the song. Let's pray. Father, we... We praise you for the fact that we have a lesson in Nehemiah. Father, we praise you for the fact that we have access to your word for us. We have, uh, we have a glimpse into your promises as we are privileged to live in a day and time where we can read them in our own language and understand. So Father, I pray that we would not simply own Bibles, but that we would dwell in them, that we would read them, that we would pray and live in light of them. And Father, would you equip us for every good deed? Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ who came to die for us when we could not earn our way to heaven, you came to us. And Father, if there's anybody in here today who hasn't received this gift of salvation, I pray that they would receive, that we would get to celebrate as a church family, as more people join our family and as more people get to experience the hope, the treasure in Jesus alone. So Father, we praise your name. We thank you that we get together here today. And I pray that you would help us as we go into this week. Remember you and your goodness and your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: And everybody said, amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kyrka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavogur, only seven miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.